We are continuing our study on the divine inspiration uh, of God's Word. And tonight we're going to begin looking at some evidence of divine uh, inspiration. Now, I find it kind of interesting, um, and, I, and I realize that you know Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, he talked about God's Word being inspired, uh, that it was good for doctrine, for reproof, correction, things like that. And, and certainly it is. But again, if we're going to, and I don't, I want to be careful how I say this because, first of all, God's word stands alone. Okay, it really doesn't need defending. But we live in a world of people who believe that this is just another book. And and the sad thing, uh, even the Catholics teach that this was just written by men. And that's why, in their opinion, the Pope has higher authority than the Word of God does. And, of course, they're wrong about that because the Bible is clear on that as well. But this book is, it, you know, it claims what Paul says in Timothy to be divinely inspired. And, again, coming from the viewpoint of someone who, who would doubt that, and I'm not doubting that at all, but my response would be, well, any book can claim anything. Isn't that true? And so the fact that the Bible claims in Timothy to be God-breathed um, to the unsaved person or to the um, doubter, that would not be uh, enough evidence. Now, again, I also realize that for the most part, it's until people are born again, they really begin to realize that this is a divinely inspired book. But rather than just go to one verse, and we haven't even got to that, Timothy yet uh, in our study, and we won't tonight either, I just want to look at some things about the Bible that shows us it has to be divinely inspired. It, it couldn't have been written by merely by men. Now, and again, I, I know uh, all of us here know this, uh, there's sort of a dual authorship in the Bible. Uh, holy men of God wrote but they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter said as, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So again, God used their, uh, their styles, and that's why those who study uh, the canon of the Scripture, the books that, that we include in the Bible, when they try to identify who wrote what part, whatever, they realize in their studies uh, different authors have different characteristics. And uh, for example, that's why you have the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark, they each had different approaches, and those who, uh, and when I say critics of the Bible, I mean they, they, they criticize it not in a way to bring a bad name, but to determine who wrote what, did this belong here or whatever. And of course that study is still going on, but they realize and they recognize that every author had distinct characteristics that, that you could identify uh, their writings by. So we're looking at some evidences tonight, and, and the first part of our lesson, we're going to mainly make some observations. And I think these are important because it helps us, I think, to better talk to someone who has a genuine question about the inspiration uh, of the Word of God. Uh, a couple of things we'll talk about. Number one is the, uh, the freshness of the Bible itself. Now think about this. Uh, have you ever tried, if you're going to go to, a, to buy a book or a uh, go to the library, do you normally look for books that are a thousand years old, a hundred years old? Uh, 
Uh, now, sometimes you do, if you look at a particular thing. But a, a lot of those things have lost their freshness because they're written not by God, but by man. And another thing about the, the Bible is the contents of this book have never been exhausted. Never. Now, now think about that. Uh, I remember the story of Elijah, uh, the man of God who goes to this widow and he asks her for some food, something to eat. And she says to him, well, all I've got is a little bit of oil, a little bit of meal left here. And my plan is, uh, me and my boy, my son, we're going to have our last meal and then we're going to do what? We're going to die of hunger. And so Elijah, he said, well, give me some first. Isn't that just like a preacher? <laughs> give me some first. Now, again, he was, just a, he was a prophet of God. We know that. And so she did, but what happened to her oil and her meal? It never ran out. And God's word is like that. You simply cannot exhaust it. You never run out. And, you know, that meal nourished Elijah, it nourished her, and the Bible continues to nourish people throughout the ages. And unlike any other book, it, it doesn't acquire a sameness. Its power never diminishes, and especially as we, as we come to him and we are hungering after righteousness. If our hearts are right with God, it continually nourishes us. Now, I, I, I don't read as much as I used to other than the Bible. I read, I read the Bible every day, at least some of it anyway. Uh, but I always like to read. But I cannot think of a secular book that I have read more than one time. I just don't desire to do that. And I've read some good books by some good authors. And uh, so that's just not something that you do. And it's interesting. It doesn't matter uh, how often we read the Word of God. It doesn't acquire a sameness. It's never stale. Or out of date. Now again, we're talking about folks who are born again, who are coming hungry to learn something from uh, the Word of God. Now we know that uh, in the wilderness, and that we'll talk more a little bit about that in a few minutes toward the end of our lesson tonight. Uh, but uh, the people cried out because they ran out of food, and God provided manna. And how much did He give them? Yeah, enough for that day. <laughs> now, Paul, I don't know about you, but I want to know about today, but I also want to know what? What about tomorrow? Yeah. Isn't that true? Now, remember, God said just go out and gather enough for one day. <laughs> and I told you those guys were free will Baptists. Because you know what they did? A lot of them went out and gathered more, afraid of what? Yeah, we don't have a good anymore. Well, that part, the extra, it just bred worms and they had to throw it out. But the good news is that manna was fresh every morning. Folks, God's Word is like that. It is fresh. It's the bread of life to us. You know, in John 6, Jesus, He was the bread of life. And He satisfies our, His Word satisfies our needs. Another story I'm reminded of when Jesus fed the 5,000 with those few fish and those loaves of bread. Uh, he fed that multitude, and did he run out? 
In fact, what happened? Had leftovers. He had some left. Oh, there was a surplus. And so God's word is that way as well. It's, it's, there's enough there to satisfy the hunger of every human soul. And no matter how often we go back to it, that supply never diminishes. Now, name another book like that. You can't do it. So that again points to a divine authorship of the word of God. Now, what's also interesting, it doesn't matter how much you study God's Word, and uh, most of us maybe have a favorite passage or a few favorite verses. We, we study them, and we, we sort of digest those. We look at them. And it doesn't matter how, how well we think we may have a passage of Scripture uh, mastered, if that's a word we can use there. Every time we go back, guess what? If you're going back hungry, you're going to learn something new. God is going to reveal something more to us. And again, that points to this. It's not just any book. There has to be a divine author. So no matter how good uh, you know it. Uh, now, I remember when I was first saved, and the first time I began to uh, read the Bible through, uh, you know, I'd never read it before. And I'd come across and I'd say, wow, I can't believe the Bible says that. And I'd call my pastor. This is before we had cell phones. And I didn't text. And uh, he'd always disappoint me because he'd already read that. And I, I forgot, you know what? It's always been there, but it's still fresh and it's still new no matter how often we go back to that. And, and it doesn't matter. Uh, the most familiar passage. Every time you go back to it and you're hungry for it, you, you, you gain something new or something fresh and go back a thousand times and it won't make any difference. You're still going to gain something more. One writer compared the Bible to a fountain of living water. And he said the fountain is the same, but the water is always fresh. Isn't that true? God's word is like that. And that's, that's one of the ways that the Bible is different from all other books, uh, secular, uh, even uh, I would call sacred writing, people who write books about the Bible or about faith, whatever it might be. The Bible is different than all of those books. Now, and what makes the difference is this. What man has to say, what man has to write about, can be gathered, for the most part, from the first reading. Now, if, you, if we don't get or grasp what they're trying to say, either the writer has not communicated well, or we didn't apprehend what they were trying to say. But for the most part, one reading is plenty. And so man can deal with surface things. And that's all we can deal with. And we only care about surface appearances. And so whatever man has to say, coming from himself, uh, is on the surface of his writings. And we can pretty well exhaust what he has to say most of the time just by a single reading through that book. And there's no deeper inclination there. But that is not so with the Word of God. I also remember when... Uh, 
shortly after being first saved, and my grandmother gave me an Amplified Bible. And uh, at that time, all I had was a King James, and then she gave me that Amplified Bible, and uh, an Amplified Bible, just what it says it is, and I, I gave it to someone else years ago. But anyway, it was, it was decent to read, but it, what it did, it amplified the meaning of God's Word. And I, I never forget what we were studying. We were studying somewhere, either Thessalonians or Timothy 1, on Wednesday night. And, of course, I wasn't the pastor then. But anyway, I read through that chapter and amplified So, man, I got this thing. That's all there is to know. It's amplified it. You can't learn anything more. Guess what? I was wrong about that. Oh, how I was wrong about that. And so the Bible is totally different. One writer compared God's Word to the mystical uh, Mexican city of El Dorado, the city of gold. And uh, he says the Bible is a treasure of gold. It is inexhaustible. No matter how long you dig and how deep you dig, uh, you'll never exhaust any of the veins. Uh, Pockets of gold will not give out. (laughs) But the thing is, whenever you're searching... For things like gold and diamonds, are you going to find them on the surface? No. You've got to dig deeper to find them. And so it is with the Word of God. And so as we're looking at the divine inspiration of God's Word and its freshness, its uniqueness, we have to understand if we're going to discover those things, it's only revealed to those who are willing to dig deep prayerfully uh, patient and diligent in their search and study of the Word of God. Now, again, uh, think about this. How long have, been people, have people been preaching the Bible? Can we say a long time? <laughs> a very long time. And it's still not exhausted. And so the Bible is like a spring of water. It never runs dry. Doesn't matter how many drink from its life-giving stream. Doesn't matter how often they come back for another drink to quench their thirst. The flow continues to never fail to satisfy the needs of those who genuinely want to come and hear from God. There is no book like it. When our nation was first founded, there were those who, through the years, began to explore the rest of our continent. And they finally came to a time when, what? There was nothing more to explore. Understand something, folks. The Bible is an entire continent that is still yet not explored. I was reading after someone several years ago, and I'm not sure who it was, but it was someone who was very well-known, a very uh, well-respected biblical scholar. And shortly before he died, somebody was asking him about his Bible knowledge. And his words were to this effect. He said, after all these years, I realize I have only scratched the surface. Think about that. Only Scratched the surface. The study guide I'm using is one of A.W. Pink's study guide on divine 
inspiration. And this was probably written somewhere, his study guide was probably written uh, in the late 1800s, I'm not sure exact date. But in that particular, in this particular study, he makes a mention, didn't give the guy's name, but a well-known Bible scholar at that time uh, who said, not braggingly, but he estimated that he, in his lifetime, he had read the Bible through 500 times. Yeah, I'm like you, Paul. Wow. Now, I've, I've read the Bible through a lot of times. And I don't think I've hit 100 yet. Okay? Uh, I'm not sure I'm even close to that. But now think about this. Can you think of another book you would want to read 500 times? Or 20 times? Or 10 times? And I want to suggest to you, there's no other book out there worth reading that many times. Only the Word of God. So, you know, think about that. How else can we account for that? I mean, how can we explain that, what we, what we know about the Bible? Now, would you agree that whatever the, man, uh, the mind of man can produce, man can exhaust it? Sure. And so if it was just written by human mortals, the contents of this book would have been mastered years ago. Now, understand that, you know, we, we, we got the New Testament now as well as the Old, and, and uh, the New Testament canon has been completed about 2,000 years, and uh, we've had our Bible quite a few years, and it's still not been mastered. And because of that, the fact that they can't be mastered, the fact that after all these years they've never acquired the sameness or staleness, at least of those who are diligent and devout in their search for the Word of God, it's always fresh to those who come hungering after God's Word. And I think the only conclusion we can come up with, only the infinite mind of God to come up with a book like this. Such an amazing book because God is amazing. So many evidence, and we're, and we're not going to get done tonight with this part of our study on this. But another, um, to me, evidence of divine inspiration is the honesty of those who wrote this book. Now think about that. Think about some of our historical characters in our nation. A lot of times, unless you get real deep in a study of them, how are most of our so-called heroes portrayed? What part do we hear about? The good parts. Now, I haven't heard this for years, and I'm not sure it still circles around, but when I was... A boy back 20 years ago. <laughs> Paul, don't laugh. I was told that George Washington cut a cherry tree down. And when his dad asked him about it, he couldn't lie. So the impression was, to my mind, 
George Washington never did what? He never lied. Now, the older I got, the more I realized that probably wasn't the whole story, the whole truth. Now, if, if this book was a forgery or written by, now remember, I know it's a dual authorship, God and man, but we're talking about inspired men. But if this book was written by uninspired men, the contents would be a whole lot different than they are. I heard Chuck Swindoll tell a story years ago, and I don't think Chuck was there when it happened, uh, but the story is that when uh, Lord Oliver Cromwell uh, was going to have his portrait painted, as they did for all the lords in England, he had a wart on one side of his face. And the artist said, I want you to turn so the wart faces away from me. And Lord Oliver Cromwell said, if you're going to paint me, you'll paint me warts and all. Well, that's the story of the Bible. God's book tells the whole story, warts and all. Now, for the most part, almost every book was written by a descendant of Abraham, a Jew. Now, I realize Moses wasn't officially a Jew, but, you know, the lineage lineage would finally catch up there. But So, written by Jewish people. And there was a lot of things went on in Old Testament history. There were some good days, good times, good, you know, bad times. They experienced some great victories. But never once do the writers brag about their victories, saying that we won these battles because of our courage, uh, because we had a, a, a military genius on, on our side. But every time they won the victory, Guess who they give credit to? To God. Not to themselves or anyone else. Now I know it's true that even heathen pagan writers uh, would often uh, ascribe the victories of their people uh, because their gods intervened. But yet it's not really the same contra, the same parallel in these two cases. Because for the pagans, their writers uh, would represent their gods as being blindly partial to their friends. So if your god likes you, he took care of you. And so if it went bad for you, it wasn't necessarily your god's fault or your fault. It was because some of the god was more powerful and he intervened and brought bad things into your life. And so that's the argument they would use. And so the contrast is very clear. If the Israelites were victorious in their battle, or if they were defeated in their battle, God got the credit. And not just mere partiality, but they realized 
if we are victorious, it's only because of God and because we've been obedient to Him. And if we have are not victorious and we lose a battle, it's not because God couldn't. It's because we were not obedient to God. And the outcome of this battle being negative is only because we rebelled against God. Only because of that. So, when they rebelled against God, when they transgressed His laws, they were defeated and put to shame, even though their God was God Almighty, El Shaddai. God wasn't weak. It was their sins and rebellion that brought about their defeat. And the writers of the Scriptures realized that. They didn't try to cover it up. They didn't try to sugarcoat it. One example is in Joshua chapter 7. They had won the battle at Jericho. You remember that story. They marched around for seven days, once a day. Then on the seventh day, uh, seven times, the walls came tumbling down. And God told them that everything in that city was to be devoted to God. Don't take anything. You know the story. A man by the name of Achan found some gold and a robe he wanted, I think it was, and he buried it in his tent. Well, the next battle was a little city of Ai. And if I'm not mistaken, about 2,000 people lived there. And Joshua's commanders came to him and said, we don't need to send the whole army. Uh, we can take him with one hand behind our back. So they go to fight against Ai, and they are soundly defeated. Anybody want to read Joshua 7, verses 10 through 12? Thank you, Jeremy. So why did they lose that battle? Because they, their army wasn't big enough? Because God wasn't strong enough? Is that why they lost? They lost because they rebelled against God. And again, the truthfulness of the writers of the Scripture remind us, man wouldn't have talked about that. They'd have put the blame somewhere up but not on themselves. But they'd put it right on themselves. Now remember, as I mentioned earlier, the Old Testament was written by Jewish men. They were the ones who chronicled the history of the Jews. And what's interesting, you know, a lot of the pagan uh, religion would say, well, that's just fate. That you couldn't help it, you know, it was in, in, inevitable, just going to happen. Uh, sometimes it because they had a bad general uh, for military failures. But to the Jews, their defeat was because of their wickedness toward God. In Daniel chapter 9, he is 
praying. He'd been reading in the book of Jeremiah, and he realized from Jeremiah that uh, they would be in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. Daniel had been there almost 70 years now. And so he knows it's about time for them to go back home. But the sad thing is, he knows the condition of the Jewish people, and his heart is broken uh, because he realizes they really haven't changed that much. They really haven't come back to God the way they should have. Look in Daniel 9, verse 5 and 6. We have sinned, have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So Daniel's praying. So who does he blame for their situation? He blames the Jews. It's our fault. Now notice he includes himself. He says, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. And we have done wickedly. It is our fault. Now think about that. And when we think about the God they wrote about, the God they trusted in, the God they recognized was God even in defeat, and the defeat wasn't his fault, not due to lack of strength. God could do anything. They realized if defeat came, it was their own fault. And that kind of God cannot be created by a human mind. It simply doesn't happen. And so we see these Jewish historians, they were not motivated by the common principles of a human mind. They realized there's something more at play here. And not only did they, and, and why we just took one or two tonight, and we don't have time to do extensive search of the different defeats they had, um, but not only do the Jewish historians tell us uh, of the defeats they had, the military defeats they had because of their sin, they are also very faithful in recording the fact that over and over and over again, the nation of Israel backslid on God. Now, one of the things that's clear from the, the Old Testament is the unity of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Anybody want to read that one? The Lord our God is what? One Lord. How is that different? In the middle of a of a polytheistic world. Other pagans believed in what? How many gods? A bunch. We mentioned last week Paul at Mars Hill. He said, as I beheld your devotions, your altars, your idols, I saw one even to an unknown god, in case you missed one. And so they were polytheistic. And Israel stood out. Now remember, that was unheard of. And 
So one of the outstanding truths of the Old Testament is that the unity of God, that God is one, and who's beside, beside him who else is God? Nobody. Nobody. And so the Bible is very clear. There's only one God. Now we know he exists in three persons, but still one God, the unity of God. And the Bible is very clear that to worship any other God is idolatry. And that certainly was not the norm in those ages. All other nations were polytheistic. So again, the unity of God is something the world hasn't known, had did not know about. It's also interesting that uh, the Bible denounced idolatry, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 through 6. Anybody want to read that one? Exodus 20, verses 2 through 6. What's the Bible say? What does God say about having other gods? Say what? Don't do it. And if you study uh, the history of the Jews, the Israelites, that's exactly why they were taken to Babylon in captivity. Because of their idolatry. Now remember, so how does that, you know, what's that tell us about God's word? Well, that would not have been written by a human writer. I mean, uh, paganism was common in that world. And so this had to be inspired by God. And over and over again, these Jewish writers cried out against the sin of idolatry. In fact, that you know, it's, it's uniform in all the prophets, uh, you know, from the time of Moses to Ezra, all three to uh, Malachi. Every one of them declared that the sin of idolatry was an abomination in the sight of God. Every one of them. And yet, the same ones who said that recorded how over and over again, and even when they lived, I mean, those before them and their contemporaries were guilty of the wickedness of idolatry. Hosea chapter 4, look verses 12 through 13. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declares unto them. For the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err, and they have gone a whoring from under their God. Their sacrifices, they, they sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains, and burn incense upon the hills, under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom. And your spouses shall commit adultery. And so we see Hosea crying out against that great wickedness. But also we think about this book like no other book. 
And we don't have time to, again, name all of them. But the Bible calls out some of those who would be considered heroes of the Old Testament. And yet, they committed the sin of adultery. Aaron, number one is Aaron. Exodus 32, the first six verses. Anybody want to read that one? Thank you, Jeremy. What happened here? What was going on? Everybody remember? Where was Moses? Yeah, getting the law. And, you know, he'd been along with the thought he should have been. So we don't know what happened to him. And so they go to Aaron. And who was Aaron? The high priest. Said, make us an idol. Now, I can only imagine the predicament Aaron was in, because they would have been pretty rowdy, I'm I'm sure. But he was supposed to be a man of God. And so he tells them what to do. They melt down golden earrings. And then they fashioned this image. And they said, these be our gods. My question is, was God pleased with that? No. In fact, Moses wasn't either. Now, but again, if, if this were a human book, well, if I were writing that, I would probably left that part out. Because Aaron was supposed to be a man of God. Another one was Solomon, David's son. The un wise, wise man. 1 Kings 11, look at verses 7 and 8. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed Unto their gods. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get this one. Supposedly the wisest man who ever lived. Now, his problem was he broke the law of God. God told Israel when they asked for a king, you're going to get in trouble. And God said, I'm going to allow it, but you're going to regret it. But he told the kings one of the things they're not to do was to have to marry more than one wife. 
And, of course, Solomon did. And so did David. But these wives drew Solomon away from his God. And he began to build idols for them. And God says, it was an abomination. Now, again, we know that if man were writing this, chances are we would have left that part out or at least try to sugarcoat it some way, explain it, whatever. But God's word tells the truth because it is divinely inspired. Another king is Jeroboam. And uh, Jeroboam was originally, I'm looking for the right word to use, but he was on uh, Solomon's staff, on his part of his cabinet, whatever you want to call it. And things begin to happen where Jeroboam realized that it's not working out between me and Solomon. And so he flees to the northern part of Israel. And uh, God sends a prophet with a cloak, sort of pieced together. And he says to Jeroboam, grab this cloak and tear it. But Jeroboam received 11 pieces and the prophet held one, if my memory serves correct. And God told the Jeroboam, I'm going to take the kingdom from Solomon. Not all of it because of his father David. And I'm going to give you ten of the tribes. And God is giving Jeroboam a chance to start new in the northern kingdom. But the problem was, by now, and by the way, even in David's time, there was always a little bit of jealousy between the northern part and the southern part of Israel. And now after Solomon's gone and Jeroboam's in there, Rehoboam is now king, Solomon's gone out of Judah. Jeroboam's afraid if, if, if I don't do something. I mean, right now I got him here, but I know that at least three times a year they've got to go back to Jerusalem to worship. And I'm afraid if, if when they go back to do that, they might change their mind and decide to stay in the southern part of the kingdom. First Kings 12 tells the story. Verse 25 through 30. But I want to read that one.
Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> now, he didn't just make one, he made two. And uh, one he set up in Bethel. The other he put in Dan. And Bethel is from, that's the, from one end of the kingdom to the other. Was Jeroboam right in doing that? No. But they never made any attempt to excuse what was wrong. They didn't try to cover it up. But without exception, these Jewish historians condemn the wrongdoing of these people and many, many more. Deuteronomy 17, look at verses 2 through 5. If there be found among you within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded. And it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true. And the thing certain, that such an abomination is wrought in Israel, then shalt thou bring forth that man or woman, which hath committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or woman, and shall stone them with stones till they die. So God says, Moses warned them. Give them a warning. If they break that commandment, and there's enough witnesses, at least two, can testify of that, they're to be stoned. They are to be stoned. So again... God condemns those actions, and the, historia, the, the historic writers of the Old Testament do the same. For this book is not man's book. It is divinely inspired. Now, again, we mentioned earlier, it's a known fact that if it were just human authors, uh, they can be inclined to conceal the faults of the, their favorite character, whatever it might be. And it's interesting, if this was a forgery uh, when they spoke of their favorite people, whatever it was, uh, they uh, would never have tried to mar or bring disgrace on their character. They would have tried at least color it in a better way or something to avoid uh, uncovering the vices uh, of these different people. And we think about, you know, even David, this in the Bathsheba. Uh, God included that story. We talked about Solomon. We talked about Jeroboam. And the list goes on and on and on. It's kind of interesting. Uh, we think about uh, King Azariah, also known as King Uzziah. Uh, he had reigned some 52 years. In fact, Isaiah uh, uh, talks about in chapter 6 in the year the King Uzziah had died. Uh, but even he, who was a godly king toward the end of his reign, uh, went to the temple and did a sacrifice he shouldn't have done. And God had him smitten with leprosy. And he was no longer to go back to the temple the rest of his uh, rest of his. Uh, kingdom at the time he, he ruled. So we see these things on these people of God. So human writers would have not done that way, but God inspired 
this. Would you agree there's no other book like this? Nowhere. No other book that I know of that tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that does not mean that uh, everything in the Bible that happened, God condoned. There were a lot of things that happened that God did not condone. But yet, He included it in the divine inspired Word of God, mainly for our warning and our admonition. But the bottom line is, this could not have been written by mere humans. Um, oh my goodness, we're just about out of time. We're going to pick it up there next week. And we're going to look at how unique the Scripture is in history. And, and again, folks, there's just simply no other book like it. Now, again, before we go to prayer tonight, the question I would ask to someone How else can you explain it? If this book is not divinely inspired, there's no other way to explain it. Now, again, we're going to get into more detail later on. But but think about uh, 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, 27 in the New, uh, different authors over a period of 1,500 years, and they all write in, in, in unity, all pointing to Christ. How could that be? except there is a divine author. There's no other way uh, to explain it. All right, let's stop there for tonight. Any questions or any comments?